sermon that, that our, our pastor preached and on, on the amazing truth that we found in Scripture that, that we are united with Christ. That when Christ died, we died to the power of sin. When Christ was resurrected, we were raised in newness of life. And because we are in Christ, not only do we have salvation as glorious as that is, but God continues to pour out grace upon grace upon grace as he works in us as we pursue him. So what I want to do today is to look at what does this mean in the life of a believer. We know we ought to strive for holiness. We, we know we are to pursue Christ-likeness. But we mu- what we must be doing at the same time is depending on God, depending on God to work through us by his word. So this morning we're going to be in Psalm 119 where we have a great example of, of a man of God who is depending on the word of God in the pursuit of God. So we'll be in Psalm 119 this morning. And I am, uh, I, I was, this week I've been studying verses 33 to 40, which is what we're going to be in. Uh, and there is just so much there. So I'm going to start off with a warning. Um, uh, I just want to make sure no one is sitting by the windows in case I go a little long. Um, if you go back to Acts, you'll see what I'm talking about. Uh, uh, Alec, I'm a little concerned about you, but I think, you're, I think you'll be okay. I think there's a landing there, so if you fall out, you're, you're good. Um, but man, there's just so much here that, that I want to share with you guys. And, and I want to start by, uh, by something familiar to you all, which is learning how to ride a bike. Uh, maybe you don't know how to ride a bike, and that's fine, but uh, I just want to share that when I had a, a, a difficult time learning how to ride a bike. Uh, when I was younger, uh, I saw the bike, and I just saw there's no way I'm gaining mastery over that bike. I had a few bad experiences, experiences of me going down a hill and deciding to bail midway with the bike, letting the bike fend for itself and rolling onto grass, and, and that was it. Um, I was done with it. Um, but I would have given up entirely had it not been for my dad. My dad encouraging me, and I will say at times forcing me uh, to get on that bike. Uh, He would put me on the bike, and while holding the bottom of the seat, he would start pushing me and start moving me and start moving the bike with me, and and I would start moving forward, and he would start to say, start pedaling, start pedaling. And so I had to act. God, uh, uh, my, my father was moving me, and I had to act. I had to start pedaling. And as I started to pedal, I started to feel the bike accelerate. I started to, to feel the, the forces from friction, and I'll hold myself from getting to the physics of that. Uh, I started to feel the bike moving forward. And I was thinking at this point, I finally got this. And I look back, only to see my dad has not let go of me. My dad is keeping me from falling and it's keeping me moving forward on my bike. And I just thought, man, this is the Christian life, that we are striving to walk that line of holiness. We are pursuing God. We are applying his word. But just like when I started that bike, just like when I started going on that bike on my own, we, we can't do that on our own power. We need God to teach us. But not, we, just need, we don't need God just to teach us. We need God to hold us. We need God to work in us. And he needs to supply the power that we need to, to live in holiness. And so we need to depend on him as we pursue him. And that's what we're going to see in our passage this morning. That is, that our commitment to God's work is dependent on his work in us. Our commitment to God's word is dependent on God's work. That we need to have a desperate dependence on God to act in order for us to pursue obedience, in order for us to be in conformity to God's word, in order for us to pursue God himself, we need to to depend on God to do the work in us. And so we're going to see this in two ways in our passage, two ways that we depend on God as we pursue God. The first way we depend on God is that we depend on God to guide us in his word. We depend on God to guide us in his word. This is verses 33 to 35. And we're, going to de- and we're going to see that we need to depend on God to we need to depend on God to preserve us through His Word, which is verses 36 to 39. And then we're going to see the, the summary statement in verse 40. So depending on God to guide us in His Word and depending on God to preserve us through His Word. 
And my hope for you is that the reality of God working in you will, will set off a, a chain reaction in your soul. That because God is at work in you, because you are united to Jesus, alive and free in him, you can obey and read God's word all the more. Because he's at work, you can fight off sin all the more. You can delight in Jesus in ways you never knew were possible because God is at work in you. So let's go to the word of God, Psalm 119, verse 33, and read with me. Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I shall observe it to the end. Give me understanding that I may observe your law and keep it with all my heart. Make me walk in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to dishonest gain. Turn my, eye, my eyes from looking at vanity and revive me in your ways. Establish your word to your servant as that which produces reverence for you. Turn away my reproach which I dread, for your ordinances are good. Behold, I long for your precepts. Revive me through your righteousness. Father, I just come before you and lift up our time to you as we worship you by, the studying, by studying your word. God, I just pray that you would, you would speak to us now as to what it means to pursue you, what it means to depend on you. And God, I pray, Lord, that even now as we, as we study, as we, as we look into your word, that you would cause us to grow in love for you all the more, that you would cause us to desire to obey you and to root out sin. God, I pray that you would do that work in us as we study this morning. Praise Jesus' name. Amen. So we are in Psalm 119. Uh, the Psm 119 focuses on the role uh, focuses on the role of the Word of God in the life of the believer. And I love Psalm 119, and it's a beautiful poetic psalm in the Hebrew. It is what is known as an acrostic. That is to say that it is structured according to the Hebrew alphabet. Alphabet, And you can see this in your Bibles. Uh, verses 1 through 8, you might see a little label or a little uh, heading. Uh, it says uh, an uh, aleph, or it might have a little X kind of symbol. That symbol is a first letter in the Hebrew alphabet. And verses 1 through 8 all start with that same letter. In verses 9 through 16, it says Beth. Well, that's the second letter of the Hebrew alphabet, and all the verses start with that same letter. So it's incredibly poetic, incredibly um, beautiful in, 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 in Hebrew poetry. But what's important here is that we need to see Psalm 119 as the ABCs of God's word. That it is the comprehensive, personal description of God's word in the life of a believer. And it is the word of God actively shaping and influencing every part of our lives. And I think what you need to understand about the psalmist is that he's not just interested in knowing God's word. He is interesting in knowing God. He is interested in seeking God. Flip back to verse 1 and 2 really quick. Verse 1 and 2 says, he starts off Psalm 119 by saying, How blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the way of the Lord. How blessed are those who observe his testimonies, who seek him with all their heart. The, the psalmist understands that walking in accordance to God's word is, is a seeking of God himself. That through the word, he wants to know the creator. That he wants to know the one true God. And not, not just know him, but he wants to honor him. Uh, jump down to verse 10. Verse 10 says, with all my heart I have sought you. Do not let me wander from your commandments. He is seeking God, and he sees a correlation between seeking God and, and obeying him. Disobeying God puts him away from what, uh, pulls him away from the person he's seeking after. Uh, read verse 11. Verse 11, your word I have treasured in my heart that I might not sin against you. The word of God is vital in our relationship with God. And the psalmist understands that. That's why he's seeking after the word. And this is what the word ought to be to us. That to study and to obey the scriptures, to meditate and apply the scriptures, isn't, isn't for the sake of, of religious piety. It isn't for the sake of, of growing in knowledge. I wouldn't even say it isn't for the sake of, sake of just being holy for the sake of being holy. It is a wholehearted pursuit 
to know God himself, to love God more, to find, to find our satisfaction in him. Now, how do we do that? How can we do that? When we get to verse 33, the psalmist is going to bring out this crucial truth that we cannot seek God without God's help, that we need him to pursue him, to strengthen us, to endure, to energize us, to even run to him. We need God, and we need to depend on God in our pursuit of God. Now, how does, he, how does the psalmist do this? In verses 33 to 40, the psalmist uses these verbs, these, these verbs of, uh, they're called causative verbs. Uh, that means that God is causing the action. God is doing the action. And in doing that action, he allows us to participate to some level in that action. Um, let me give you an example with going back to, to the bike. Uh, it's like riding the bike with my dad. Right? He was holding the bike. He was moving the bike. But I had to start doing something. He enabled me to start pedaling, right? to start moving. And so it is with us and God. He is holding us. He is enabling us. And because he is enabling us, we can then act. We must be committed to following his word, but only by depending on his grace. So how does the psalmist do this? How does the psalmist depend on God? So look at verse uh, 33. So verses 33 to 35, what we're going to see is our first point, that in our pursuit of God, in pursuing God, we need to depend on God to guide us in his word. We need to, to, to depend on God to guide us in his word. And the first way he does this is by teaching us. Look at verse 33. Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes. Now, what does it mean to teach? Um, now, I'm a teacher. Uh, you would think I would, I would have a, a super insightful answer to that, and I don't. Um, so let me ask you a couple questions. Is, it, is teaching simply passing on information? Is that teaching? Or is, is teaching having your student just repeat a skill that you want them to repeat? I think the, the psalmist answers this by, by, by giving the, uh, the verb that he uses here for teach me, it is not the same word he used earlier. This word is a Hebrew word that you know, that you, I'm, I'm sure many of you are familiar with, which is Torah. It is the word for Torah. Torah is the first five books of the Bible, is the books of Moses. And, and the, the psalmist uses that throughout Psalm 118 as a synonym of God's word. It is Torah, but he uses Torah as a verb. So I, I was trying to figure out how I would translate that to English, and maybe like uh, I thought of Torah eyes. That's, then that sounded like terrorize, and I'm like, that's not, that's not what I'm trying to go for. Uh, but he, he wants God to teach him as he taught in the Torah. Uh, think about what, what, what the book of Moses teaches. It contains laws, right? When you think about like, maybe like uh, Leviticus, you think of laws for the priests. You think of laws for the people of Israel. Maybe you think of the Ten Commandments, right? The Ten Commandments come to mind, right? It has laws, it has things that, that tell us about how we are to approach God and how we are relate to one another. But that's, it's not just laws, right? And if you think about all of Moses, think about Genesis. Genesis has a creation account. What does that tell you about God? Genesis has God using evil for good. We have his promises. And you go through the, the, the first, five, first five books of the Bible, and there, we could go on and on and on about what that teaches us about God. So I, th I think what the psalmist wants is that he, he wants God to give him insights. He wants God to give him insights into all aspects of life. He wants God to teach him on how he should be approaching God himself, on how he should be approaching others, he wants God to, to remind him how he keeps promises, on how God uses evil. All that thing, all those, he wants God to teach him. And he just doesn't want data. The psalmist is not interested in just having knowledge for the sake of knowledge. The psalmist wants a kind of insight that leads to practicality. Practical insights. Now, practical insights into what? Look at the, the next part of verse 33. He says, practical insights into the way of your statutes. Now, the way is often used as a metaphor, as, as a way of this is how you should live, and you should live according to these statutes. Statutes, we have another synonym, synonym for, for God's word. And what I hope you guys see as we go through this is that these synonyms have specific emphasis 
uh, on, on aspects of God's word. And the em emphasis of her statues is on the permanence of God's word, that we're looking at the permanence, uh, per permanence there you go, of God's word. You know, you want to think about something being etched in stone. If something's etched in stone, you can't easily get rid of it. And that's the same with the word of God. God's word is permanent. God's word will never pass away. So the psalmist in verse 33 says, Lord, Lord, I, I want to follow you. I, I need you to teach me so that I can live according to your permanent word. And by the way, how, how, how does he address the Lord here? You see in your Bibles, it says the Lord, all capitalized. That means he's, he's using God's covenant name. He's, he's addressing God as Yahweh. And when he addresses God as Yahweh, he's approaching God on the basis of who he is, on the basis of what God has promised. And we approach God in the same way. We approach God on the basis of what Jesus has accomplished, on the basis of our union with Christ. We're able to come boldly to the throne of God because of grace, because of what Jesus has done. And we say, Lord, Lord, I need you to teach me your word. I need you to give me those practical insights. I need you to do that so that I could do something. And the psalmist tells us what we should do with that. Look at the second part of verse 33. The psalmist says, and I shall observe it to the end. Here's the psalmist's commitment. Right? He, is, he, he, wants, he wants God to do the teaching. He wants God to act. He needs God to act. But the psalmist actually desires to follow those teachings. And, and to what end, right? To what end will he follow the teaching? Well, the psalmist says, I'm going to follow it to the end. He is a fully committed to apply his scriptures without any limitation, without any reservation until, he pursue, until his pursuit of God ends, until he crosses that finish line and is with God in glory. I think so many times we, we ask God, you know, help me, Lord, to, to apply your word. Uh, we, we say it very often here at CBC. We say, oh, Lord, open our eyes so we may see wondrous things in your law. Amen. We need to ask God that. But then what? What do you do after you ask God that? There needs to be a follow-up on our part to observe what God is teaching us to follow what God is, is showing us. And here's something really beautiful. We see this, this beautiful marriage of human responsibility and God's sovereignty. God acts. We pray God to act. And when he acts, we respond. We need to ask God to teach us. We are dependent upon his, his teaching us. But we also ought to be committed to do what he does teach us. So the psalmist is dependent on the word of God being taught to him. He's dependent on God doing the teaching, but he is also dependent on God giving the understanding. So look at verse 34. He says, give me understanding. And now let me just stop right here. The, the request is simple. It's, Lord, cause me to understand. Lord, do this work. Do this act of causing me to understand. And uh, what does it mean to, to understand? The, the Hebrew word there is, is it, it, it means for bet between, right? This is the idea of you're, you're, you need to choose between two things. Um, and so what we're looking at here when it says, cause me to understand, is cause me to give, uh, give me discernment. This is the idea of choosing between two options. He's asking God, Lord, I want to apply your word when I'm making decisions. I want to apply your word when I need to navigate life situations, it's not, he's not just asking for, for a comprehension of God's word. He's not saying, Lord, I, I'm having a hard time with this passage. Let it click so I could know it and move on with my day. He's saying, Lord, I need you to cause me to understand so that I could apply it to real life. And so this is what he asks. And, and, I, and I think when he's asking that, uh, it's good to keep in mind that the decisions we make sometimes does not have a clear right answer, right? A lot of life, decisions in our lives, um, 
are, are not so necessarily about right and wrong. And I think, I think we want to treat, the, treat it like that sometimes. Or we have a, a, a situation, we have an, a, a decision we have to make, and it's easy for us to, to say like, well, this is wrong to do and this is right to do, black and white, and there we're done. But decisions very often in life is not about that. So how do you make those decisions when it's not a right or wrong issue? How do you make those decisions when maybe it's a good, better, best issue? You know, where, where, where do you choose your, 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 the school for your kids to go to? What do you get to change jobs? What do you get to make a, make a large purchase? What would be wise? And what are we to do in those situations? And what we see here is that we need to depend on God to cause us, to, to, to give us that understanding. He needs to cause us to discern what is right, what is good, what is better, what is best, in light of his word. We need God to guide us. Now, I mean, let's go to another extreme there. Does that mean that when we have a decision that we have a hard time making, that we should say, um, I don't know a decision. Uh, Lord, you do it. You make the decision. I'm walking away, and when I come back to the room, everything's going to be decided for me. Uh, no, right? That, it doesn't work that way. We're, we're not asking God to do the work for us. We're asking God to give us the wisdom required to do that work. But it is a dependence on God. You can't do that work without depending on God first. It is dependence on God to give us a wisdom, to give us an insight from his word to make choices that honors him. And so the psalmist is depending on God He's dependent on God to give him understanding so that he could do what? Look at, let's go back to verse 34. 34, second part, he says, give me understanding. That's, that's, that's a verb that he's, that's, that's a, uh, the, the, the plea he's making to God. Give me understanding so that I may observe your law and keep it with all my heart. He wants to make these decisions not so that he makes the wisest decisions with his money, not so that he, he gets the best outcome, but he wants to make wise decisions. He wants that discernment from the scriptures so that he could observe his law, so that he could honor God and follow him. Uh, and he says, he says at the end there, get and keep it with all my heart. What is the heart? Well, what does the Bible mean when it says the heart? If a... Uh, it's not the heart that, that, that pumps blood. I know this is a little bit silly, but I live with kids, and kids, I, I just train to take things very literally, so, or to, for people to respond to me literally. So if I say, hey, check your heart, Calum, like, I'm fine. That's not what I mean, okay? I'm not talking about your actual heart. Um, when the Bible is speaking about your heart, the Bible, is, the Bible is speaking about the control center of your emotions, the control center of your will, of your decisions. It is the complete inner being where everything comes from, from what you say how, to how you respond to others to what you want in this life. That's what the heart is. And so the psalmist says, Lord, cause me to understand. Do that work in me so that I could have in my innermost desires your word implanted within me, that your word will be governing my heart. And when we ask God for discernment, he, he causes us to put the scriptures into practice. And without the word, if we don't do that, if we don't go to God and ask him to do this, without a word, we're, we're trying, to, we're trying to, like, to clean up a messy bedroom in the dark. We, we, if you ever, I don't know why you would do this, but if you ever tried to clean up a messy bedroom in the dark, actually, I think of a situation, but it's okay. Um, <laughs> when you clean up a messy bedroom in the dark, you, you have to... You know, you're reaching around, trying to pick up things. You don't know where you're picking up. Is what you're looking at uh, or what you're holding in your hand, is it, does it go in the donation box? Is it a family heirloom? You know, what is it? And you can't see. Everything is hidden from you. But then you ask someone to flip a light switch. The light switch is on. Suddenly you could see. Suddenly you could start getting to work. You could start sorting things with, with perfect vision. And so it is with the Word of God. It is, the Word of God is a light that reveals the sins in our hearts. It reveals the idols that are hiding in the shadows of our heart. Hebrews 4.12 says that it is, the word of God is a sharp sword, piercing between the divisions of soul and spirit, of bone and marrow. 
and is a, a discerner of the thoughts and intentions of the heart. But it, it must be God who turns on that light. And that's what the psalmist realizes here. He's going to God. God, cause me to understand. God, turn on that light. God, help me to see so that I can start removing these idols, so I can start making these decisions that are based on honoring you, that are based on on conforming myself to your word. So the psalmist depends on God by asking him how to teach, by asking him to cause him to understand. And in verse 36, he says, cause me to walk. Make me walk in the path of your commandments. And we see another causative verb. Here's another causative verb. Cause me to walk. He's saying, Lord, I need you again. Lord, I'm depending on you to teach me. I'm depending on you to cause me to understand. And I'm depending on you to cause me to walk. Cause me to live in the path of your commandments. Now, verse 35. Another word for the word of God. Commandments. What is that? What's the emphasis there? The emphasis is that the word of God has an expectation of obedience. That God doesn't give us his word as a, as a suggested, highlight, uh, uh, suggested guidelines. He doesn't give us his word as, hey, this might be a good little life hack for you to try. There is an expectation that you obey God's word. And that expectation goes to the world. God demands that the world repent. It's a command given to everyone in the world. For, for his followers, we're commanded to forgive. We're commanded to take up a cross and follow him. We're commanded to, to make disciples of all nations. All those are commands, and all those have the expectation that we obey it. So the psalmist is saying, God, I, I know your word needs to be followed. I know what you say, and what you say, I need to obey it. But I can't do it unless you cause me to move. Unless you cause me to walk down this path. Now, I love the word for path here. The word for path is a a well-trodden road. Um, uh, Have you ever hiked a trail that was maybe like, 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 like a hiking trail that uh, was made not as well-defined. Um, you know, it's a, it's a little, it could get a little sketchy, uh, if you, depending on what trail you're looking at. Uh, one, I'll give you guys a quick story. One time, my uncle, and I was like 12 or 13 at the time, my uncle took me and my brother up to the mountains, and we saw a trail. And the trailhead had a lot of overgrown weeds. It, it, it was growing in the middle of the pathway, and we're like, okay, does it split up into two? Does it go straight? You know, what, what we're looking at here? But like, eh, let's just go on it anyway. And so we went on this trail. And along the way, the trail will sometimes abruptly end, and we're like, well, let's just keep going, and maybe it'll pick up, and it did pick up. And then it would abruptly end, and then we couldn't tell where the edges were. And it was very, very hard to follow. Um, so, we hiked about, <laughs> so we hiked about four or five hours on this trail. <laughs> Uh, and we, uh, we, we found ourselves surrounded with three cliffs. A cliff in front of us, a cliff to the left, a cliff to the right. We're like, okay, this is not the right decision. Some, this, uh, uh, our, our, the trail has led us astray. Let's turn around. Let's go back on the trail. We turn around, and I swear, like, the grass may have moved or something, and the trail is gone. The trees have shifted, and then now we're lost in, in this, on this cliff. Um, fast forward to another hour a rescue helicopter comes and picks us up <laughs> because we didn't know what to do. It was four or five. My, my poor uncle was with these two kids who were complaining and, and didn't have any water or anything to drink. So anyway, the rescue helicopter, that was the best hike ever uh, you know, to a 12-year-old. Um, not the point of the sermon, but, but the point is the word of God is not like that trail. The word of God is not... Here's the path, here's not the path. The word of God is a clear, well-trodden path with the commandments of God so plainly lining the path of disobedience, or sorry, the path of obedience. This path will not lead you astray. This path will not lead you to a cliff where you have no options. But you cannot walk on this path on your own. You need God to cause you to move, to cause you to walk, 
He needs to be your guide, where God is not only pointing you the way, but God is waking you up. God is putting you on your feet, and God is enabling you to move in obedience according to his commandments. So why does the psalmist ask God to do this work? Let's go back to verse 35. It says, make me walk in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. It is because he delights in it. He enjoys God's word. Listen, obedience isn't something that God forces you to do. It's not something that you do begrudgingly and, and angry at God while you're doing it. If you're doing it, obedience that way, this is not obedience. You're not going to say, okay, God's not going to tell you, forgive your brother. And you say, well, I don't really want to, but okay, now God's making me. No, that's, that's not how, how obedience works. He works in us so that it's something that we want to do. What did Jesus say in, in, um, in John 14? That if you love me, you obey my commandments. Obedience comes out of love. I love Psalm 37.4. One of my favorite verses to go to, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Isn't that amazing of God? That, that our God doesn't make obedience a chore to us. He makes it a delight to us. He gives us what we delight in as we are delighting in him. And then from that, he causes us to walk in his commandments. It's all God doing it. But we have to be committed to God, to pursuing him. So this is how we depend on God. This is how we depend on God in our pursuit of him. We depend on God to teach us. We depend on God to cause us to understand. And we depend on God to, to cause us to, to walk in obedience. This is how God guides us by, through his word. Now let me ask you a question. Does your life have this kind of dependence on God? Are you, are you approaching the scriptures pleading with God that he would teach you, that he will lead you? And do you follow that request with a commitment to follow what he does show you? I want to encourage you that if, if this morning, if you are united with Christ, if you, are, if you have died with Christ and been resurrected with him, then God is already at work in you. You have, you have that power in your life to live a life that is, that is honoring to him. But you still must go to him in prayer. You still must ask him to cause these things to, to, to work in your lives. And he'll open up, your, open up the word to you. He will teach you, and he will cause you to walk in the way. So we depend on God to guide us in his word. But we also, need, we also depend on God to preserve us. And there's the next point, that in verses 36 to 39, we're going to see how God preserves us, how he, he preserves, preserves, preserves us in the daily battle of holiness. And so the psalmist is going, to, is going to give us four petitions, four things that we can pray so that we depend on God to preserve us through his word. So verse 36 gives us that first petition. He says, verse 36, in Incline my heart to your testimonies. Our first petition here is that God will, will, will bend our hearts. That, that word for incline, the word for incline means to bend or to twist in a particular direction. And we know, we, we know our hearts, right? Our hearts, their natural inclination is to go away from God. We know our hearts are deceitful. We know our hearts desire to, to follow the flesh, right? To, to follow what, what dishonors God, naturally. And so the psalmist says, Lord, I know my heart. I know what my heart wants to do, and I need you to bend my heart towards your word. I need you to twist it, to make it go towards your word. And again, there's that dependence, right? God, God has to cause this. So incline my heart, bend my heart towards your testimonies, right? That says in verse 36, incline my heart towards your testimonies. You know, when, when God gives a testimony, God is giving you what he deems to be true. God is telling us what actually went down. It is truth 
given from the author of truth. And so the psalmist is saying, God, God, I, I need you to bend my heart towards what you say is true. I need you to help me to trust in that you are the author of truth, that you give me everything I need and that what you say is right. But along with that, in verse 36, there's also this, this negative where it says, Lord, I, I need you to pull me away from gain. He wants to go away from gain. Now, in verse 36, it says, and, and, uh, uh, and not to dishonest gain. So a lot of your Bibles probably has that dishonest in italics. Um, and it's true that that word in, in uh, the Hebrew for gain is often used for corrupt gain, for, for uh, unlawful gain. Um, but the psalmist just has the word gain, and, and the word for gain can't just, could just be used for gain itself. And so the psalmist is concerned about any kind of worldly gain that distracts him from the testimonies of God. When we start to get things in the world and we start to accumulate things, when we start to become obsessed of things, those obsessions pull us away from God, right? The love of money or the love of, of worldly accumulation, the love of being popular, all those things could be ruling motives that shroud out our commitment to God's word. It's actually a very scary and dangerous, dangerous prospect to think about. Paul writes in uh, 1 Timothy 5.10, right, that the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And some have even wandered away from the faith, longing after it. It's a dire warning there. So whether it's money, or they want fame, they want to be well thought of, whatever this world has to offer, the psalmist says, Lord, I, I need you to keep my eyes, to turn my heart towards your testimonies, to what you say is true, and not to what's, go what's going on over here. He wants to be like a boat. He wants to be like a boat caught in, in a strong current, caught in the, in, in the current of the word of God, and the current of the word of God is taking him away from the world and to the shores of God. So we pray, along with Psalmist, Lord, turn my heart, bend our hearts to your word. And the second petition that we, we see in verse 37 is that God, that we ask God to cause our eyes to turn from the world. Look at verse 37. Verse 37, turn my eyes from looking at vanity. Now, what's vanity? What, what, where have we seen that before? Uh, well, vanity is just really anything, any worthless kind of things, but it's also been used of talking about idols. Um, so we could say it's empty, it's vain, it, it, it pulls us away from God, it goes contrary to what God has said. And so the, the psalmist says, all those worthless, empty things, I don't even want to look at. And it's interesting that he goes from the heart to the eyes. You guys notice that? He goes from the heart to the eyes. How was it that sin first entered the world? It was through Eve, right? She saw with her eyes that the apple was good to eat. And so the psalmist says, I don't even want to see that. I don't even want to see those worthless things. You know, you, you, you want to get an expert on worthless things. You go to Solomon. Right? Solomon was given great wisdom from God. And yet, even in giving that great wisdom, he searched for satisfaction from the world. Uh, he searched for satisfaction outside of God. And this is the book of Ecclesiastes, right? In the book of Ecclesiastes, um, it, it talks about how, how Solomon looked for satisfaction in money, how he did the whole, you know, sex, drugs, and rock and roll, how he went into business ventures, how he started collecting proverbs. I think it also talks about that he was um, breeding horses, which I think is like a super regal kind of thing to do, but it's interesting. Um, he dives into all these things, and what does he say over and over again in that book? Vanity of vanities. Worthless of worthless, right? This is futile. This doesn't lead anywhere. And he concludes that book by saying, the only thing worth doing is to fear God and keep his commandments. Take it from the expert of worthless worldly things. It leads nowhere. Let's not make the same mistake Solomon did. But, but in order to not make that mistake, we still need to go to God and say, God, cause my eyes to turn away from these worthless things and turn away from these worthless things and instead focus on the life that I have in you. Right? It says in verse 30, 37, to turn my eyes away from looking at vanity and revive me 
in your ways. In order to not be enticed by the worthless things of the world, we need to be focused and enjoying the life that we have in Christ. I love the way Charles Spurgeon puts it. He says, vitality is the cure to vanity. Vitality is the cure to vanity. If you're having a hard time with detaching yourself from the world, you need to focus on the life that you have in Christ. And that life we have in obedience and to, to devotion to God's word, that life will reveal the, the emptiness that the, the things of the world offer. The, the word canters the world in an amazing way, but God has to start that, right? We need to ask God, God, help us, help us turn our eyes from that. So how do we persevere? How does God help us persevere? He, he helps us by bending our hearts. Right? He bends our heart towards his testimonies. He turns our, our eyes from gain, turns our eyes from the world. And the third petition here is that God uses the word to preserve us, that God confirms his word to us. So verse 38, that says, establish your word to your servant. Establish your word to your servant as that which produces reverence for you. Now, I kind of have a question here. How is this related to perseverance, right? If it says establish, he's saying establish your word to your servant. How is that related to perseverance? Well, what do you do? What do you do when difficulties come? What do you do when doubts come? The psalmist says, we need to be fixed in the word of God. We need to have our minds fixed on that. We need to be reminded of God's faithfulness. And that when, when God gives a promise, we know that he'll keep that promise. So the psalmist prays that God will make his word like a, a great monument before him. That, it will be, that he will cause it, literally cause it to be erect before him. So we ask God to make this so in our own lives, that, that God's word will be this unshakable, immensely awesome mountain before us that we know we could always depend on it being there. So what does that do for us, though? Uh, this is kind of interesting here. He says in verse 3, as that which produces reverence for you, or literally as that which produces fear of you. I always thought this was sort of confusing. Why would... Why would the fear of God be a result of meditating on his promises for us? How, how does that translate? Well, I have two reasons that I've thought of, and, and this, this could really be its own sermon, but two reasons that we can meditate on today. One reason of why me, uh, uh, God establishing his word to us will lead us to fear. One reason is because the wrath of God is worthy of our awe. And to teach that, I kind of want to want you to think of a picture. Imagine you're a rock climbing, and I know some of you are rock climbers. I would never do rock climbing. It's just why I go up on, on a mountain. But you guys are awesome who do it. <laughs> Imagine you're a rock climbing, and uh, and you are on the face of this mountain. It's a beautiful day. You're enjoying the sun, and you're just boop right there, right on the face. And a storm suddenly catches you by surprise a fierce storm. The storm threatens to kill you, and you're just on this mountain. And now that mountain that you're enjoying being in the face of, that you're enjoying hanging out there, that mountain is almost as if it's offering you as a sacrifice to the storm, that it is exposing you to the lightning and to the hail and to the wind, and it seems like the storm will kill you. Then a small crevice opens up in that mountain. You jump into that crevice. You hide yourself into that mountain. Uh, there is a small cleft of the mountain, and you go into that mountain, and you're safe. And you see the storm outside, and you still tremble, not because that storm is in, you're in, not because you're in danger of being killed by that storm, but that you realize that you almost felt the wrath of that storm, that you almost died with that storm raging outside. My friends, this, this is the wrath of God against sin, and this is how the wrath of God should bring about an awe to us. You know, one of my favorite songs that we sing is Rock of Ages. We sing, Rock of Ages, 
cleft from me, let me hide myself in thee. We are safe from the wrath of God because we are united in our Savior. We are in our Savior, and our Savior takes that storm, takes that wrath, and protects us from it. But we look at the wrath of the Savior bore, and that should cause us to fear that this God is so is capable and righteous of giving and leashing such wrath. So we fear God. Now, that's reason one. Reason two builds off of that. Reason two why we fear God when we look at his promises is because that awesome and powerful God is at work in us. That same God who brought this storm, the same God who, who gives immense wrath, is at work in us. Philippians 2, 13 and 14. It says, work out your salvation, which I think is what the psalmist has been doing here the whole time with his devotion, with his commitment to follow, word, to follow God's word. He's working out salvation. So work out your salvation in fear and troubling, for it is God who works in you. The reality of this awesome and powerful God who is now working in us, who is now working for us, is staggering. And when we look at the promises that God made, when we look at, at the wrath that Christ endures so that we would have eternal life, we look at the power of God's word, the, the appropriate response is thankfulness, but also fear. A reverent fear, but with an excitement because, because that God is no longer our judge. He is our father now. That God who has such awesome power, that same power is no longer working against us, but is working for us. So when we look at God's promises, you know, Psalmist says in, back in verse 30, establish your word to your servant. You see his promises and you imagine and you, be, and you see his great power working for you. So the last petition we have here, verse 39, last petition we ought to pray for, for God to preserve us that he will take away shame. Take away shame. Look at verse 39. Turn away my reproach, which I dread, for your ordinances are good. Now, the shame here could be referring to the shame of guilt and sin. Uh, and we certainly have confidence that, that God, can't, God has taken away that guilt. You know, Romans 8.1 says, For there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But in the immediate context, it's, it's that, that, that shame is more of a reproach, uh, a reproach from people who are attacking his character, from people who are planning against him, from people who are speaking against him. Uh, just look up to verse 21 uh, in Psalm 119. Verse 21, it says, You rebuke the arrogant, the cursed, who wander from your commandments. Take away repro reproach, the same word, and contend for me, for I observe your testimonies. And in 23, even though princes sit and talk against me, your servant, your servant meditates on your statutes. Again, scroll, well, scroll down if you have your tablet. But if you have a regular Bible, go down to verse 42. Verse 42, so I will have an answer for him who reproaches me, for I trust in your word. Maybe you have people in your life right now who are provoking you, who are falsely accusing you, these could be people you love. This could be coworkers. This could be family. You have people who are embittered against you and want to see you hurt. Because maybe it's because you're a Christian. Maybe because they just don't like you. What do you do with that? How do you deal with the reproach that other people have towards you while still pursuing God? You do what the psalmist does, and you ask God, God, take this away. You go to God, and you leave that before the throne of God. And you, you completely entrust it in him. Yes, God is solemnly at work in you, but also God is solemnly at, wor at work in all things. And all things for the good to those who love him. And if he is solemnly at work for your good, if he is solemnly at work for his glory, you could depend on him to do what is right. Now, what do you do while God is working? You don't have that relief. Those, those things are still there. The reproach is still there. What do you do? Well, the psalmist points us to, back to God's word. 
verse, the end of verse 39, he says, for your ordinances are good. You know, the ordinances, ordinances are judgments. They're judgments of God. Not judgments as in like he's going to give a, a final judgment, but judgments in the sense of he's making a call on what is right, what, what is right and what is wrong. It's talking about what God looks at, what God looks at and what his final judgments are. What he determines to be right. And the psalmist says, I know whatever God calls right, whatever God judges is good. That the judgments of others, the judgments of others are skewed, the judgments of others are, are twisted and are misinformed, but the judgments of God are right and whole and good. And go back to how God has judged you. If you're in Christ, if you're united with Christ, God sees you as righteous. God sees you as perfect. Not because of your own power and right? not because of your own reputation, but because of his son. He sees his son works, his son's righteousness, his son's perfection on you. And yes, we say his judgments are good. So we pursue God, trusting in him, telling him, Lord, take this away as I trust in your word. So we have seen that our pursuit of God must be coupled with a dependence on God. We must depend on God to guide us in his word, and we must depend on God to preserve us through his word. So where does the psalmist go from here? He knows he needs to go to God. He knows he needs to depend on God. Where does he go? Verse 40, and we'll close with this. Verse 40, Behold, I long for your precepts. Revive me through your righteousness. Two questions for you as we close. What is your pursuit in your life? What are you longing for right now? At the end of this section, the psalmist has a strong confession. His confession is, I long for your precepts. I long for your instructions. He wants to know God's instructions because he desires to know God himself. This is his whole life's endeavor. His whole goal is to know God, to seek God. What else could be a worthier pursuit? What else could bring you more satisfaction? Jesus tells us that this is eternal life. Eternal life is to know God. My friends, is knowing God your ultimate endeavor? Do you trust that, that seeking God will bring you the most satisfaction or seeking after the things of the world will give you that satisfaction? Are you being distracted by gain of the world? Are you being distracted by the reproaches of others against you? My friends, if this is you, turn from those things and trust those things to God and make God your pursuit, and he will help you pursue him. And my second question is, are you united with Christ today? Can you say you, you have been joined with Christ in his death and his resurrection? Our pursuit in God has to be grounded in Jesus. Christ died taking our sins upon himself. Christ died, and when he died, we died with him so that we are no longer slaves to sin. And when he resurrected, we were raised by the same power so that we could be slaves to righteousness. It is by his righteousness that we are made alive. And the psalmist realizes that he can't do anything without God. And we too realize that we are helpless. We are helpless without the union that we have with Christ. Are you united with Christ today? Have you turned from your sin and trusted in Christ today? If you haven't, let me tell you, you the Bible says that you cannot know God. If you haven't trusted Christ, your pursuit of God is in vain. Your sin separates you from the Holy Creator. But Jesus has died for you so you can be forgiven and that you can be reconciled to him. So have you been united with Christ today? If you haven't, please don't leave here without talking to us. Talk to me, talk to Patrick, talk to Luke, talk to any of the believers here, and they will point you to Christ. And if you have been united with Christ, depend on God as you pursue him all the more. Steady his word as you ask him to teach you, as you ask him to give you understanding. And, and be confident that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we just thank you for your word, Lord. Thank you for the promises that we have, that you are at work in us. 
that you will not leave us stranded, that you will not uh, lead us and, and, and not take care of us, Lord, but that you will provide. Father, I pray that you would help each and every one of us in our pursuit of you, Lord, that you would equip us, that you would teach us, and that you would cause us to walk in a way that's honoring to you and that we would respond to that by seeking after you all the more. Thank you for being our faithful God, Lord. We give you all the praise and glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand with us if you would. Shine. 
benediction this morning comes from Acts 20, 32. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Amen. Well, you have a great Sunday. We'll see you back here next week. Blessings to your day.